Hello, and welcome to The Rules of Investing. My name's James Marley, and I'm going to be your host for the final two episodes of 2023. My guest today is Ben Griffiths, founder and portfolio manager at Ely Griffiths Group. Ely Griffiths Group was founded in 2003 and has built a strong reputation as a specialist small companies investor over that time. Ben established his credentials as an investor at ING and BT Financial Group, which is the breeding ground for what have become great investors, names such as Ken Nielsen, Crispin Murray, and Paul Moore. Today, Ely Griffiths Group has a seven-person investment team specializing in emerging, small, and mid-cap stocks and manages in excess of $1.6 billion in assets under management. Ely Griffiths Group's flagship small companies fund has compounded returns at 9.38% per annum since inception, which is 4.29% ahead of the benchmark. Ben, I'd also note over the past year, you've managed to generate a positive return when the small cap index is down roughly 5%. Welcome to the show, Ben, and congratulations on your 20-year anniversary. James, thanks very much for that warm introduction. It's great to be here. Now, I want to chat about the big picture and specifically in the environment that investors will be facing as we head into 2024. But before we do, I'd love for you to give readers a download on how you use the macro factors as an equity investor. We often hear stock pickers talk about the fact that they only focus on company fundamentals. However, I've been an avid reader of your quarterly letter that draws on a range of factors from macro to technicals and other indices. So Ben, as an opening question, I might hit you with, what are two or three indices, data series or technicals that you reliably turn to to get your bearings on markets? And importantly, what are they telling you now? Well, that's 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 all um, all quite reasonable, uh, James, and 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 you're right. Um, we we do use and and I've been drawing on macro um, macro elements in in my preparation for portfolio management and my uh, my appraisal of the market for for a number of years. I think you need to set the backdrop and um, uh, for for where the stock market is is trading, um, and you need to be aware of the pressure points before you can then work out which sectors are likely to perform and then build a portfolio from that. I mean, the first thing I, I would typically do um, is is well, before I look at the when I'm assessing the health of the stock market, I want to know how credit spreads are behaving, and they're a great risk barometer. Uh, when credit spreads are elevated, um, that's uh, that gives reason that g- gives rise for angst and um, and and some concern, and and that has a direct bearing on risk assets. Well, in the case at the moment, credit spreads are quite benign. They're not as low as they were, but they're probably closer to normal ranges. So it sort of is the first indication for me that that um, it, the water is safe to swim in, if you will. Um, I like to look at investor sentiment. Um, I've been a student of investor sentiment since I started in markets. Um, you know, I, I crave front pages. I look for adverse, either excessive ebullience at the tops of markets and excessive uh, bearishness at the bottoms. And so I, I like to measure sentiment and probably the easiest one for, for investors uh, like myself and, and, and I guess some of the listeners um, is the AAII series in the US, which, which gives a direct print on investor sentiment. And, um, and as we talk about the markets on our, on our pod, we'll, we'll discuss how extreme that setting got back in October. So I look at investor sentiment uh, as an important precondition for whether stocks ought to be bought, uh, ought to be sold. Um, I've mentioned the credit spreads. And then as you also pointed out, I'm somewhat of a fan and a student, I'm still a student, believe it or not, of, of technical analysis. And I always want to know where the primary trend is on a stock 
or an index or, um, or a commodity for that matter. I want to know where the primary trend is and, and whether there are any indications of exhaustion or whether the trend is, 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 is suggesting that investment with the trend is the way to go. Um, and there are various patterns that we haven't got time to discuss today, but it's generally investing with the trend. Um, and for me, the 100-day moving average or the investment line, as it's often known, is is probably the best trend indicator you can use as to as to where the markets are going up or markets are going down. So that they're just a couple of samples. They're the sort of uh, some examples of the tools that I would regularly look at um, before I start framing an opinion of uh, whether stocks um, we can buy stocks or whether we should be um, sitting in cash for a while. It's interesting you mentioned there the front page of the newspaper and what's being reported in the press. And when I was doing some background reading in, in preparation for our chat today, I, I, I jumped on Bloomberg and there were a few headlines that jumped off the page for me. The, the first one questioned how low the Fed will go in 2024. And the other headline was that, that, that Bitcoin had rallied 142% in the year to date. Those two headlines are, are quite a big shift in the narrative compared to what we faced just 12 months ago. And so I, I put the question to you, is, is risk back? And do you think that we've seen the peak in the current rate hiking cycle. I, I look at Bitcoin as a proxy for risk, and you know how low can they go is, is quite a big change. Um, I think I think risk is back. Um, risk is back, but in a measured way. Um, I think that the whole situation's changed late late October. Um, that's when that's when I guess when when the Fed came out and. And and basically presented a um, a hawkish hold on, on on rates was how how I took the rhetoric, uh, and the market took it uh, took it so as well. What we have is the beginning of or we're underway, I should say, with a pause rally, and and a pause rally is typical at this stage when when a central bank decides it's it's probably done on hiking, as I as I think most will agree, the Fed has done, um, and those pause rallies have plenty of juice in them normally, and um, if if history is any gauge, they can go for up to nine months. So I think we've got a pause rally underway. Um, I think. The investor sentiment that I referenced a minute ago, uh, we had that AAMI survey printing net bullish reads at about 21% in the early days of November. That told me that um, when you get sentiment readings that low, um, the market is set the wrong way. Um, and then in the middle of November, I got especially excited when I not- noted on the NYSE, we had we had a very rare 10 to 1 up day, 10 stocks up for every one stock that fell. You rarely see that. Uh, when you see that off, a, off an important low with volume, you get a 10 to 1 up day. I'm not saying to the listeners you can take that to the bank, but what I'm saying is it's the sort of confirmation I like to see um, ahead, of, ahead of getting, um, getting a, little bit, um, a little bit enthusiastic. So I think risk is on. You mentioned Bitcoin. That's a great arbiter and a great barometer of uh, whether risk is with us or not, and, 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 and you're right. Um, some very sharp moves in Bitcoin. So risk appetite's back on. Have a look at the meme index, the meme ETF, which I keep a close eye on that trades on the NYSE. That's up 50% this year. That's had a, a, a rocking great time uh, since uh, since late October. And and non-profitable techs, another benchmark, and another little uh, index that uh, I follow off Bloomberg, and that's absolutely powering. So I'm not for a second suggesting the lunatics are out of the asylum, um, but what is happening is there's been some stability, and I think sentiment is is such that um, uh, you can you can you can sketch out a constructive path forward for equities. Um, certainly for the next uh, well, 
I'll say nine months, eh? But certainly, I think I think there's going to be a buoyant time ahead for us. I imagine the meme index wasn't something you learned back in 2003, Ben. Look, I'd never heard of a meme in 2003, um, um, but certainly um, they are a feature of the market, whether whether one approves them or not. Um, they're a feature of the market, and you saw you saw GameStop the other night had a big move as well. I mean, that's another classic stock that gets gets um, bombarded by the Reddit mob. Um, so all those things, they sort of can point to froth, but I think at this stage they're really pointing to uh, the return of animal spirits, which are g- generally pretty positive. So not getting too carried away right now, but but suggesting that um, but the conditions are reasonably fertile for a rally. You mentioned before that, that day, I think it's the 30th of October, when we saw markets really rip high. That whole week was, was really positive for equities just was is it your take that that's when investors became comfortable that inflation was no longer the major concern or, or the fight that central bankers had on their hand no i think that's dead right um that's exactly what happened and that of course those sentiments have been building for a while it's just all of a sudden um the market twigs and 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 away it goes it's it's funny when it comes to risk and liquidity, um, it can be very negative and, and there's no liquidity about, and then it just seems to turn on on something that gets said. It turns on a on a, on a broker strategist report. It turns on something on the front page of the paper, and all of a sudden it's on, and you wonder two weeks ago, how could, how could things have been so bearish two weeks ago? So I think we've gone through one of those moments where the planet's lined up. Um, at, that, at that time, I've mentioned the hawkish hold. I've mentioned... Um, Credit spreads, the term premium started um, started coming in fairly aggressively around that same time. The the Bank of Japan announced it was going to stand off yield co- yield curve control. There are a whole bunch of things that, that literally bought bought in a U turn um, with, um, with, with with stock markets, um, and away it went. So, yeah, quite amazing. They do happen as quickly as that, and and often there's there can be no apparent logic or reason to them. But that's that's how markets behave. Okay. I'd like to dive into what you're seeing and hearing on the ground. And, and if we talk specifically about the local market, uh, we've talked about the fact that risk appetite has been exceptionally low for some time. The IPO market's been, been very quiet. Is the phone ringing yet to book you in for, for IPO meetings in, in early 2024? Uh, no, no, it hasn't started yet. And I, and I just thought I, I would make one comment too, um, James. A lot of talk about the smaller end of the market where where my business plays and 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 where we've where we've made our bones, um, uh, that part of the market has been somewhat dormant um, and under pressure. And it's not just the Australian small cap market; it's globally appetite for small companies, and that's whether that's in primary demand for IPOs as you're talking about, or secondary raisings, or even just the conduct of the market. Interest in small companies has been wanting. The MSCI World Index and the MSCI World Small Cap Index normally move in step, and they got immediately out of step, and the small or the small cap um, benchmark plunged and sold off right at the time the Fed hike rates last March. So that was the immediate divergence point. And since that point, um, small caps globally have struggled. So my contention would be as the market swings around and decides um, that we've seen the last of the hikes and perhaps if the betting's right and we've seen 130 basis points of rate cut expectation is already factored in US bonds, um, 
from about March next year, that should be positive for small caps of all ilk globally. Now, with that, we'll come to your question, and I apologise for the for the long-winded approach to the, to the question. With that will come um, the, the restoration of IPOs, the interest in IPOs. Um, we've already seen in this last week alone a number of um, equity transactions in the Australian share market, um, whether they're fresh equity raisings for asset purchases or whether they're founder sell-downs. Those transactions have been reasonably well-received. That's a sign that, again, the spirits are awakening. So I think IPOs, I think that, that's the next iteration. There have been a couple of IPOs in the last 12 to 18 months that have been forced on the market. And I mean that, they've been forced on the market and they've performed fairly poorly. Um, one or two have fought back and got above their IPO price, but most have wallowed. Um, the mood hasn't been right. The appetite hasn't been right. Um, but I think it feels to me like that's set to change. So I haven't been sounded out. It's it's a bit early. It's it's a very seasonal thing. So I think IPOs now, if you have an IPO, you're not doing it now. And maybe March is when they come back on. Now, just because it's the other side of the reporting season, people assume, oh no, we'll, we'll have them penciled in for the first week of March. I can tell you when the market gets moving, IPOs and deals will happen in the middle of the reporting season. They'll happen the end of January. They'll happen whenever the deals need to be done. So, but we're nowhere near that yet. So, so I think it's all fairly, fairly cautious. It's all fairly sensible right now. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. But uh, no, I'm not being uh, inundated. But there were a number, Jimmy, to pick to pick up pick you up on that point. There were a number of IPOs that were slated for 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 transacting and listing before Christmas that have now been pushed into March. And I think a couple of them would have gone quite well in any event. So they'll be um, extra well sought after um, in March or certainly pre June. I think pre June is how we should be thinking. Pre June twenty four. Yeah. So I'm keen to dig a little bit more into the into what's been happening in in small caps, um, and and we've seen that small caps have lagged their large cap peers for quite some time. Um, and I've had some of the investors that we speak to saying it's it's as bad as they've ever seen. Um, for someone that's been investing in in small caps for the best part of thirty years, keen to know you know what's your take on this divergence? Um, what do you think is is behind it? Is it structural or cyclical? And what will it take for it to turn? Yes. Well, it, it isn't. It isn't structural or secular. It's uh, it's certainly cyclical. And small caps will will sort of um, oscillate around being more expensive than big caps, and then small caps will be cheaper than than, than big caps. And that and that is all um, an out an outworking of the mood of the market right now. The, the small cap part of the market's at about a seventeen and a half times PE, and that's about an eight percent discount to the large caps. The ten year average is about that. Maybe it's closer to ten percent. So we're broadly tracking uh, where we where we should be. I mentioned interest rates, which have had a bearing a heavy bearing down on sentiment. Um, and and rightly so, and we've seen that play out. What we've also seen has been an earnings downgrade cycle that's been running concurrent with that um, interest rate setting. We've had 18 months of downgrades in the small ordinaries. It's been uh, quite extraordinary, and that has also contributed to the bruised sentiment that you alluded to. But how about the recent AGM season? Why don't we talk about that very quickly? That came out, that wasn't too bad, in fact. And um, we had fewer negative surprises than we've had in previous reporting seasons or AGM seasons. And we had more upgrades versus downgrades by the time we'd finished with the AGMs. 
I'm just wondering whether does that is that somehow signalling that we've come to the end of the downgrade cycle? It's been 18 months of bruising. Um, the AGM season suggested there's perhaps a little bit more resilience out there than we might have given credit for. Now, there's some obvious hot spots and consumer discretionary if you're in the apparel business. Um, you're probably doing it um, a little bit tough. Um, but if you're if you if you're Beacon Lighting or or, or Nick Scarley, you, you might be faring not so bad. So we'll we'll see. It feels like the, the consumer is still um, under some pressure, and 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 those that will be will be probably on show in the results we see in February from the companies. But I just wonder, as a as a as a as a as an index, um, as a collective, whether we've seen perhaps. Um, the worst of the downgrades um, from 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 from, uh, from the small companies that we can invest in. Well, we're on the lookout to see whether have have margins bottomed. Have we been through that misery the last eighteen months, and we're now going to see them coming out the other side? And they'll come out the other side. Maybe revenues fall away, but maybe companies have been extra diligent in cutting costs quickly, and so you'll start to so you'll start to get restoration of margin. And so we're on the lookout for that. So we'll see. But it is playing out like any other cycle. Um, I guess the the RBA is a little behind the, um, the 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 rest of the world. So we've, I guess, the pundits would suggest we've got another hike probably in us and 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 possibly two. So maybe we don't see. I mean, my personal view is that the US will stay higher for longer, and we won't get a cut as early as March as 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 people are suggesting. It's probably closer to June ish, and I think Australia follows a little later. So maybe we're August before we we see something. I'm just thinking out loud, of course. Don't hold me to these dates. Um, and so, at the moment, we there's a view that we'll start getting some interest rate relief. Um, that'll also have positive effects for, for for corporate profitability. So, there are a, a growing list of positives you can put on the table. I guess six to twelve months ago, you were sort of scratching around to find them. Yeah, Ben, you mentioned AGM season. Are there any companies that stand out from the the meetings or or the the, the presentations that you and the team have heard from that that you felt um, you know, delivered less worse than feared updates or were particularly handling it well? Are there any anecdotes that you can share with us? Oh, look, I think um, we always target quality names. We invest in, we love investing in good quality industrial names with, with beautiful um, operating franchises. Um, you know, Breville and, and Boral came out with, um, certainly Boral had a good update. Look, Ridley had a, had a, had a really impressive update. So, so I feel pretty good about the, the prospects for Ridley. Um, and then, I mean, they're the ones that sort of, sort of stood out, uh, to, to, to be honest, there were a few disappointing ones, but, um, you know, Ridley's a, a stock that the Lily Griffiths Group own and have owned for some time, and they're doing they're doing pretty well. Everything they said they'd do, given that given the restrictions and and the and the impacts on their operating environment. So I think you, 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 it's it's safe to look at just look at the AGM season as a whole, and you'll see that on on balance, um, Australian corporates um, updated the market quite favourably. Ben, in discussions past, you've talked about how you like to think about what your portfolio setting wants to be, get positioned and, and hold that line for, for a period of time. And, and you've sort of talked about your views on what's happening with rates and where we might be. Could you talk me through some of the sectors that, or, or, or the types of companies that you want to own as we head into the environment that you've set out for, for us in 2024? And maybe you could take a, an example from, from something that might feature in your mid-cap fund and, and maybe something down the, the micro cap, down the smaller cap spectrum, but 
you know, what sort of things do you want to own in that, um, in that sort of the current, the slightly higher interest rate environment, but as things start to slow down a bit. Sure. Sure. Well, look, we, as I said, we, we have, we are naturally attracted. We're drawn to good quality businesses. Um, and so you should expect to see good quality names that are probably household names to, to everyone listening to the pod today. Um, you know, Monodelphus, a name like that, which is a, a leader in, in mining services. ARB Corporation is a, is another great example of, uh, of, 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 a, of a homegrown business that, that's taking a, Taking an, an auto product to the world with with with, with great success, and that's a, that's a stock we've owned off and on for years, and it's in the portfolio now. Um, so you'll 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 nearly always see um, those sorts of names: the Brebbles, the Borals. Um, look, we we also are from time to time we'll own resource names, and and we'll own resource companies not because we've got a necessarily a bullish view on a commodity or not but we actually own them because we've we happen to believe their growth story and we believe um, the 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 undertakings that management have um, um, are, are correct and that you'll see a great earnings growth story and you know Capricorn metals and Genesis minerals are two examples of resource companies that happen to be in the gold space um, they've each got their own modus operandi as to what they're trying to achieve ultimately but ultimately it's going to be diversified assets it's going to be production growth it's going to be profitable profitable growth it's going to be potentially expiration upside but generally um, in the case of resource stocks and Karoon energy is another one that um, that, that, that that you'll see um, amongst uh, Ely Griffiths group holdings that's a, that's another example of a business that's being methodically put together and built for the long term, with very very sensible management. Um, so that's they're, they're the sort of stocks that um, that um, you know, you'll see in the portfolio. And as I said, there'll also be some caution with us around stocks who we think their their um, their operating margins haven't bottomed. You'd expect to see um, you know. Stocks like Auckland International Airport and and Worley. I mean, Worley's a great example of a of a um, engineering services group that's that yes provides services to the hydrocarbon industry, but it also provides valuable services to the to the renewable space and are doing great work. Um, naturally, the stocks that are that are in our emerging company portfolio will be different to those that are in the the mid cap portfolio. Um, but stocks like you know Ordinate, Templin, Webster, Codan. There's sorts of businesses that um, that that, that um, take pride and pride of place in the portfolio. Um, so, the, so as you can see, we it's a it's a it's a it's a sensible portfolio. We have strict rules around the number of stocks we have. We 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 keep an eye on our cash balances. The last thing we want to do is have a portfolio that all of a sudden's got too much cash when we've got ourselves a a strong a strong tailwind in equities. So um, yeah, so that's um, we feel. Pretty pretty comfortable about how the portfolio is positioned um, for, for for the market we see coming up, Jimmy. Just on on Boral Ben name you called out there earlier. If you look at the the narrative around that, you've you've got high input costs. Um, you know, sort of business that would have been exposed to, to margin pressure. Um, you know, with you know labour costs going up, um, and you know the, it seems like con- the construction industry, at least housing that side of things, looks to be slowing. How do you build the case around a, a company like Boral that's, you know, over the past few years, actually a pretty tough time? Yeah, no. Look, I can, if I took my shirt off now, you, you'd see the welts on my back from, from previous outings with Boral. Um, look, I think I can, I can almost name the five CEOs that have preceded Vic. Um, so I'm well aware of, 
I guess historically the failings that the business has endured. Um, yes, but 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 Boral today has a new CEO, a, a CEO that we're well familiar with, and Vic Bansal. And and Vic, we first um, invested alongside Vic when he was the CEO at Cleanaway. And we took an early, formed a very early view on Vic when he was at Cleanaway, and he had a turnaround. He had a genuine, um, a genuine um, repair job on his hands at Cleanaway, and I think he arrived. In fact, almost certainly he arrived at Boral with a similar um, job to, to to reset the business, and he's doing a good job. So it's less about the cycle, which of course is providing some headwinds for everyone who's involved in construction right now, but it's probably more more about self help and bringing in some proper operating disciplines, whether that's divisional P&Ls, whether that's um, making sure you've got the, the A team in place, and um, which they may or may not have had a, a, along the journey. Uh, I think it's self-help on the case of Boral. It's, it's putting that business in the, in the, in the sort of um, match-fit state that it should always have been in, and Vic's getting underway doing that, and the market has, respect, has responded accordingly. So yes, I mean, it'd be very easy for me as a seasoned investor uh, to just simply switch the switch the stock off and not even open the folder, given the history, and the history has gone from times of misery to 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 times of um, sheer monotony. Um, today, Boral's become a quite exciting business um, with with an exciting management team, and if the cycle turns, um, we, we, we should we should see some um, we should we should see some good times for Boral. Just disciplines generally in a, in an industry that is renowned for for poor practice and poor discipline. I think um, I think Vic has already made some great strides there. An exciting story, and honestly, if you'd have told me. Asked me three years ago whether I'd ever be talking like this uh, regarding a building material stock, in particular Boral. I'd have, I'd have literally asked you to stop the interview now. Uh, we couldn't go any further. It's, it's quite a revolution that's happening there. Well, Ben, I want to stay on some of the – we'll dig into some unloved parts of the market because one of the things that we've seen at REITs has been a classic example where investors have not wanted to touch the sector with a barge pole concerns around debt repayments and, and leverage and then you've got some of the macro factors around what's happening in office, etc. Keen to know fr- from your perspective, do you look at some of these distress, max distress opportunities because I think the, the, some of the comfortable names or the, the well-run names are the obvious place for investors to go but at a point like this where companies have been pushed to the limit or, or pushed to, to, to point to discomfort and there's some uncertainty in grey areas, that can also present opportunities. So I'm keen for someone that's been through multiple cycles just to, to find, is that an area that's interesting to you, finding some, some parts of a distress where the story might not just be as bad as people expect? Look, certainly. And one thing I've learned too, James, there's, there's no prizes there's no prize for being first there. Um, you, you can identify um, a favourite REIT and then it could take 18 months before we actually begin to see the bond market behaving as the right backdrop, then the company doing what it needs to do and whether it's delevering or addressing valuations. Uh, there is guaranteed to be no prize for us being first there, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking. It doesn't mean we're not looking and it doesn't mean we're not taking a ton of meetings around these sorts of distressed sectors. So REITs is a good example. Um, I, I, we don't feel like we need to do something yet um, to be to to be uh, to be honest, um, but certainly REITs are, are an obvious place where some money will be made at the right time. 
the 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 other area where there is some distress and there's certainly some um, well there's no distress I don't think but there's certainly some angst around it of course are some of the consumer finance names you know judo joined the joined the boards not too long ago and it's really been one way traffic since it IPO'd and probably the same with Liberty Financials have um, had a, had a, had a tough investor reception uh, latitude uh, and pepper money so these are these are really solid little business franchises that are well managed in the main, um, but are just um, too pointy in for investors. Now, we're keeping an eye on them. Um, we're doing the meetings. Um, in some cases, we do own one or two of them, and we might even be nibbling at one or two of them. But at the end of the day, um, we do need to recycle our portfolio, and we do know, we do need to buy stocks and sectors that are out of fashion. We just need to be very measured as to how we do that. Um, you can be a long time wrong, buying a REIT 12 months early. Um, so we just need to be measured on that. Um, but certainly part of part of our business as a fund manager is is recognising pockets of excess value and switching the proceeds into pockets of relative undervalue. And and that is the name of the game. Rest assured, that's, that's what we do every day. And what are some of the things that would need to happen for you to start to, you know, for those, for those unloved sectors? Is it, is it, uh, an easing in the interest rate environment? Is it them renegotiating their debt? What are some of the things that get you closer to wanting to own those companies? Yes, well, it's it, it's certainly that it, it can be it can be a more favourable interest rate backdrop. It could be a company um, deciding to address its the market's valuation concerns that that that, that, that properties on balance sheet aren't being held at the appropriate valuation. It could be addressing that. Um, it could be all of a sudden forming an opinion that um, the consumer perhaps is in better shape than we might have thought. It can be as simple as really thinking that um, you know industrial property has been a, a boom area and it's done particularly well. You might frame the opinion that um, the, the tremendous rental growth that industrial parks have enjoyed, maybe that's coming to an end and maybe it's time to buy office again. Um, heaven forbid, when people start heading back and and and, and returning to the office. So look, we're on the lookout for for those sorts of themes. It it, it will be invariably the it'll be the, the the restoration of consumer confidence, no doubt about that. It'll be a general improvement in in um, in in animal, in animal spirits um, around um, you know, around the operating environment for owners of property. Um, and it'll also be balance sheet refreshes. Uh, in the case, of, often often the low is marked by a, a major equity raising to to cleanse a balance sheet, um, or, or or a major acquisition where someone where an operator steals an asset from from another operator that's in distress. Um, that can often be the the flashpoint for a for a revival. So all of those things we're sort of looking for, we're not really seeing just yet. Um, so we don't. Um, we can be. We can be patient. I think with with some of those sectors that are um, under a bit of pressure, um, and and also we do keep an eye. And I mean, I'm not not embarrassed to say it. I'm, dare I say, maybe a couple of competitors will be tuned in on the pod. But um, you know what competitors are up to too. If we have some competitors that we rate highly, which there are many, um, all of a sudden deciding to move into rates um, or or moving into um, a number of these consumer finance names, it might sort of spark something with us that maybe we need to um, go and have a look at them. So we don't we don't necessarily follow what our competitors do, but I like to keep an eye on what they're doing because, you know, they get a few right too, you know. Yeah. <laughs> ben, we're going to get into our, our, our regular questions in just a moment, but I, I do note that Ely Griffiths Group has, has recently 
um, welcomed a, a new strategy to the family. Not that long ago, you, you went down the market cap scale from your, your core small caps offering into emerging companies. Now you're stepping up into the mid-cap part of the market. What's the, what's the appeal of mid-caps for, for Ely Griffiths Group? No, you're right. I mean, well, the, the, the logic for it is for us has been compelling for some time. Um, 28 of the 50 stocks that live in that mid-cap space we've owned before. Okay, so we're we're very familiar with the the business model. We're we're very familiar with management. We think we know what we're going to get um, if 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 we choose to own them. Um, it's logical in many cases that we've surrendered some of these names. Unfortunately, we've had to surrender these names, but it's logical that we bought that we can be able to own these stocks and buy them back as they move up the market cap tree. So we've we've been sort of a forced seller given given the rules of how the small cap product works. Um, it's a shame to let them go. So we've we, we had a chance to get back on and back involved in companies that we know and are very fond of. Um, so that, that was somewhat a motivation. The mid-cap part of the market's been sort of that, that quiet, sweet spot that just year in, year out grinds out nicely. Um, it's a part of the market that is, is so much a part of how we do things, and yet we haven't actually had um, a, a retail product, uh, an equity product for, for people to to um, to um, invest in. So it makes sense. Our skill sets there, with strong familiarity with the businesses, we know that part of the market to be a sweet spot. And 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 in a cyclical sense, the mid cap the mid cap sector, mid cap industrials have derated about forty five percent on our numbers back to around fifteen and a half times, and that brings them bang in line with the ASX fifty industrials. So you've got mid cap industrials as cheap as large cap industrials, which is ridiculous given the, the the overwhelmingly more bullish growth prospects for mids versus large. So we think mid caps have gone on sale, and that's completely overdone. It's a part of the market that holds great appeal. There's a there's a there's a significant resource component to, to that part of the market of which we have some great skills in. So it's it's an area we need to, we need to be in. Um, you're right. We start with smalls. We've gravitated down the market cap tree. Um, we've got a successful product there, and we think we know our way around there. This this really rounds out the offering, and I think um, and rounds out our skill set. So that's the rationale for doing it. And, uh, and we launched very recently, and and um, we've got to say the reception's been quite good. And Ben, what are, what was the what were some of the the early holdings that went into that plan? You mentioned it launched recently. What's what's big in the portfolio? Yeah, well, we've been we've been big fans for a long time of car sales or car group as it's known now. Um, so that so that um, no surprise that car is is in the portfolio. I touched on Genesis before. I touched on Boral, um, GQG. Um, we're, we're, we're great fans of, of that of that investment management model, um, and Auckland International Airport and Wally, just a, just a handful of names that, that have that have gone in there, um, and there, of course there are many there are many more. There's a decent tail of stocks there, but they're the sort of they're, they're some of the bigger names at the top of the portfolio that, that that we believe fit the bill, that come out of our process looking good, and 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 we believe will um, will serve unit holders well. Well, hopefully it has a has a, has a good a good run and 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 builds a record similar to that of the, the small companies fund. Listen, I'll send you a PDS after the interview. No problems. <laughs> All right. Well, at that point, why don't we jump into our three regular questions? Um, the first one, Ben. What's the one thing that you think investors are getting wrong or missing in today's market? Yeah. Well, it's. Um, I think what investors 
regularly make mistakes of and they're, and they're, and and they're, and they're making and they have made it in this market is when you've done the work on a stock and you've built your conviction around the model um, you've gotten comfort with management you, you you convince the board are great stewards and great shepherds of the business and you've scoped out the re- the the revenue opportunity what you now need to not do is 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 drop drop the ball Right and and get anxious because the share price is legged down. It's down another five percent today, and they're down three percent. I think a loss of conviction is easy when you get rattled by what's going on in the press, um, how the share price is trading. And I think people who've done the work, who are strong believers in a certain stock or business model, and then lose their way. And we've seen, we certainly saw, I, I believe, evidence of that where in towards the end of October, where as I said, stocks appear to have bottomed, but coming into October there was somewhat of a give up. So I think investors have, I think we're seeing investors have basically lost lost conviction at precisely the wrong time, and they'll be buying stocks back. Those very stocks that they had the conviction on, they'll be buying them back much higher later. All right, let's move on to, on to the next question. This is a bit more of a, a retrospective, and, and hopefully you can t- tease out a, a few lessons. But I was hoping you could share a win or a loss from your career um, talk us through the gruesome details around what happened or, or talk us through the highlights if it was a win. And, and importantly, what was the lesson that you took from it? Well, I know you asked me about this before we came in and I've, and I've thought long and hard about it. And I, and I thought I'd do something that most, most guests probably don't do. And I thought I'd reflect on a loss um, and, and, and what it taught me. And I'll have to wind the, wind the clock right back to the, the late 1990s when I was, um, when I was managing money. And Back at ING, in fact, when I was a portfolio manager there, and we had a substantial shareholding in a in a in a in a, in a company that many on the pod won't even uh, have recalled, but it was known as it was known as Discovery Petroleum, and as a substantial gas producer in the Perth basin of WA, we owned six percent of the company, maybe even seven percent. But the problem with it was it was a it was a perfect perfectly predictable, well managed business that traded in a trading range. And I went from $0.55 cents to $0.62 cents and back, and between $0.50 and $0.60 cents for years. We owned 6% of it, and I remember just being so bored with it and anxious that I, the opportunity cost of holding this stock was so great, I could be in other things. And the moment the stock broke out of that 50 to $0.60 cent range, it broke topside and was trading at $0.65, $0.70. Cents. I sold the lot. I sold them all out. And felt fantastic, and I sold them pretty well in one ticket, and which gave me a fright, I guess, after I'd done the business. And the reason that happened was, of course, a corporate raider had turned up, recognising the same value that we'd seen, and had decided that they were happy to pay a modest premium to secure a, a, a position. And it was Premier Oil of the UK, and they turned up and bought all our stock. And when it was revealed that it was Premier, the stock popped again. And then oil search were rumoured to be interested in buying Premier. And I just sat there with my hands on my head saying, I held this stock, this beautiful company for three years. It gave me nothing but angst because it just didn't really go up. It paid paid a modest dividend. And I sold it at precisely the wrong time. And I looked like a complete fool. Why did I do that? And I guess the lesson that I learned from that was that Never sell a stock that's long been inactive just at the moment it begins to move up. There's a reason why that stock is broken out of that out of that trading range. Um, and of course it was corporate activity and it was it was Premier Oil's good fortune to steal that business. I've 
I've never forgotten that story. And the moment I see a stock move un- erratically or unusually um, out, of, out of what has been a, a, a boring set of trading circumstances, um, rather than just react if I, if I want to sell them, I, I hold off and, and, and seek an explanation. So I think that's the lesson I got. I learned from a loss. And we, whilst we didn't lose money on the on the actual position, I forewent some nice gains. I, I handed them to Premier Oil of the UK. They weren't going to thank me, the British shareholders. If you're, if you're wrong, you're wrong. If you if you leave it on the table, it almost hurts more. No, it did. That was an awful. But I learnt. I, I haven't forgotten it. Not a day. Well, that's not right. I was just saying, not a day goes by. I don't think about it. It's not quite that bad. But um, you've taken but a lesson from I, it. It always come. It always comes to mind when people ask me what I've learnt in the market. Right, Ben. Well, listen, this has been great. We're, we're nearly done now. Our final question, just a, a quick note to, to listeners out there. This is a hypothetical question. Um, we're obviously not advocating you, you you put all your all your money into a single stock and you know, Ben runs uh, carefully risk-managed, diversified portfolios. This is meant to be a, a, an exercise in long-term thinking and also a bit of fun. Uh, so, Ben, for our final question, if, if markets were to close tomorrow, and stay shut for five years, and you could only own shares in one company. Which company would that be, and, and why would you own it? Well, I thought that was a great question, James. And you you emailed me the other day, and so I'm going to ask you that question and and, and give it give it your best your best consideration. And I thought about it long and hard, and I went through went through a whole bunch of sh- shortlisted names, and I've landed on a on a New Zealand stock um, of, of 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 all stocks, um, and it's Main Freight, and Main freight. Many of you have seen the trucks. Have seen the trucks rattling up and down the highway. It's a integrated freight handling warehousing logistics operator. Um, not that old, really. Established in 1978, and it's a it's a superbly managed business. That's that is without being cliched, it is taking on the world. Um, operates in I think it's 25, 26 countries um, with the most seasoned. Um, management team, and they are basically hell bent on taking the main freight message and the and the main freight way to the rest of the world. And they're getting great traction now. They're big in Australia. They're growing in Asia where they've hardly really got started. They've just turned soil in India, which is going to be an enormous opportunity. But they've only just landed there. In the United States, they've turned up. They're getting a great reception, and their their revenue lines about a billion dollars. The biggest competitor in their space is a revenue line of a twenty bill, so you can see there's some there's some um, there's some market share and some volume to be had. They're opening up in well they're in Europe already, and but Europe's opening up to them, um, and they've got a balance sheet that's net cash. Um, with the management team that you've got there, which is amongst the highest caliber I think in Australasia, with the growth trajectory that the business it has, and they've only made one acquisition. Um, the last acquisition they made was back in 2011, which I think was a little business in New Zealand, I think. The rest of it's been grown organically. Speaking to the CEO a while ago and asked him about um, the, board, the number of board meetings you have and how do you conduct them, and he said a, t- a, a typical board meeting goes for about three or four days where they literally go from centre to centre and review the operations of the business. It's an extraordinary business that pays dividends. If I had to if I had to do exactly that, Jimmy, and, and basically buy the stock and then hibernate for five years, I know while I'm sleeping, the business would be paying dividends and growing organically as you'd expect it to and with all the management disciplines you want to see. So that's my stock. Hypothetically, I'll see you in five years and, and, and we'll see uh, we'll see where it, um, how, how its fortunes um, unfold. Well, hopefully it won't be 
five years till we next catch up, Ben. But main Frank, definitely one to to keep on the radar. Uh, to all you listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Ben Griffiths, who's the founder and portfolio manager at Ely Griffiths Group. Ben, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. Happy 20-year anniversary and all the best with the new fund. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me on today. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, mate.